Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I feel a big divide culturally between people who understand, who kind of live a trauma-informed life, and those who are just perpetuating outmoded ways of being. From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is Out of Patience. Today's a different kind of show. Not quite the softer side of Sears, but perhaps a more introspective look beneath the veil of mental health and all the things that piss us off like cat posters. Maybe not cat posters, but seriously, have we not yet gotten over cat posters? Today, I welcome Marie Elizabeth Molly, self-proclaimed relationship alchemist, two words I've never heard spoken in succession that we will break down during today's episode. In the cancer world, we talk about isolation as the number one mental health affliction of diagnosis and how finding your community is of paramount importance for many, not to feel stigmatized or judged. But at the same time, this is true for relationships because we all have unmet basic human needs and too often find ourselves unwoke to becoming unwired. Marie Elizabeth believes that we are all creative people in some way, and I somewhat agree because, I mean, come on, anyone can play the radio. But seriously, there's something afoot, exacerbated further each day by our current polarized climate and COVID-19, about aloneness versus isolation, defensiveness versus reflection, and exceptionalism versus craving generosity and tolerance. Enjoy the show. What is a relationship alchemist? I ask that because I've never heard those two words in succession before. Did you invent it? Those two words? No. You put them together? Yes. But what is that to you? And how do you explain that to our listeners to intro you to the show? A relationship alchemist is someone who takes the common elements of life and relationship with the catalyst of attention, the catalyst of coaching, the catalyst of practices that help you alchemize, for lack of a better word, that help you work through whatever your barriers are to clean and clear connection with another human being. Um, through that process of alchemy, it is my experience that people's relationships get better, they have more freedom, they have more connection, they have more authenticity, more access to their truth and the ability to express it and hear another person's truth, all of which is very important today in this environment that we currently find ourselves in. And so I decided to put those words together because it felt like a more accurate representation of the in-depth work I do than the simple word coach. 
Because when I heard that word the first time, I thought of Dr. Bunsen Honeydew and the Muppets and the lab on fire with the beakers and everything going crazy. But you're kind of flipping it's like that, that sometimes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, I also want to point out to our listeners, you are like a Renaissance woman. You are a poet. You are a master's in Chinese medicine, acupuncturist, massage therapist, public speaker. I, I dare to say, what aren't you? We, you're not a man, which is probably in your interest to not be a man. But we're recording this show in the time of COVID. And help me understand if it makes sense to boil everything up into the sky, 30,000 foot look into what you were doing. Is this all about mental health? Ultimately, it is. Because the first relationship that I believe we all need to alchemize and work with is how we relate to ourselves and how we relate to our thoughts. Because that relationship determines what we see in the world. It determines how we respond to what comes toward us. It determines almost everything really in the realm of relationship. How has your background in poetry affected this? I mean, I'm, everyone knows, uh, my listeners, that I'm a concert pianist and a composer. And being a creative artist, you know, you always want a stage, you want the applause, you're looking for that validation. Did that drive you and shape you into this? Or were you brought in? Most people are doing things that are purpose driven because they've been burned by something like I had a cancer or someone lost in the family or whatever. Mm, I love that. Well, I got divorced about eight years ago, and I would say that was the thing that really had me turn toward this question of how do you create a great relationship? Because I had been a creative for years before that. I think the way poetry relates is I have a love of depth. I always have. I have a love of really precision with language and finding language to put to experience, which is not always easy to do. And in relationships, especially communication is always such a challenge to get right or smooth in so many cases. And so poetry is a way, you know, how do you communicate depth of feeling, experience, witnessing the world, perhaps a transcendent moment that's wordless? And how do you find words for that? And then share them in such a way that they awaken that same experience in the reader or the listener. So I think all of it plays into my work as an alchemist around relationship. And it was really my divorce that catalyzed my determination to figure this out because I, my work has always felt great, whether I was doing massage or acupuncture or writing or underwater photography, which I also do. All of that has been very clear and very aligned with my purpose. I mean, when I was 17 years old, I realized I was doing theater at that time. And I realized I was here to bring people out of their regular experience of daily life at that moment through the theater, through music, but every other thing, I do the same thing. And then to return them to their lives after that experience, hopefully with a broader perspective, hopefully with more access to feeling. And so I realized that I was here to do that at 17, and every single thing I've done since then has been an expression of that. But I wasn't really great at my own relationships and at making them work. And so it was really my divorce that was that catalyst that had me go deep into the study of human relating and how we, the triggers, the difficulties, the, the wonderful aspects of relating, all of the things that come up for us in relationship. And it really reawakened my desire to work with people again, 
because I had taken a 10-year break from client and patient care, and that all of it came together when I began to deeply study relationship as its own thing. So improv everywhere notwithstanding, I heard you on one of your videos say that you believe all people are creative in some way. I like that you button it with the in some way, but it, you really think that's a fair statement to make? I know people that just have the, they're incapable of emotion. It's like Robert De Niro's character in, in Meet the Fockers. Like they're it just, mm. you have no idea what they're doing. They are stoic. Maybe they want to be broken out. Like maybe Barbara Streisand gives them the shoulder rub or whatever. I'm, I don't know why I'm referencing that movie over and over again, but <laughs> you know, you know, in, in music, we say, oh, anyone can play the radio. Ha, 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 dad joke. Ha, ha. You know. Oh, that's good. I like what that. is your <laughs> What is your take on, is everyone potentially creative? I think everyone is creative at their core, whether or not they express it based on what other strengths they have. You know, if they were affirmed their whole life for their math skills or their science skills or but I, I I believe math and science are creative endeavors too. I mean, so it's difficult for me to think of someone who is completely not creative. I'm going to give you an example. This is slightly different than the creative question, but it's up for me. So this is what comes to mind. I recently, uh, my mother recently passed away and I've been going through, I had a bunch of old letters and photographs uh, stored at her home in my desk, my old desk. So I brought all that back and I was sifting through that last week. And so I'm reading these letters from men, boys and men, high school, you know, ones that I knew in New York, men I met in France when I studied abroad for a month, people that I met uh, when I lived in Taiwan. And, and the overarching experience of reading these letters was, wow, oh, these men have so much feeling and so much emotion that they were sharing with me in these letters. And and I couldn't figure out if it was just, is there something about me that attracts that kind of man who's expressive of his, you know, able to connect with what he's feeling and able to articulate it? Or is that something that exists in men up until a certain point and then it's drummed out by culture, by family, by the workforce, by you know, it's not safe to be a feeling person in this world. It's a real question for me. I'm curious what you think. That is a nature nurture at its core, kind of almost anthropologic right. discovery. No one's born evil, right? So, right. you know, if you want to follow the Machiavellian, all men are evil, all men are good, whatever that looks like. You know, I'd like to believe that it is instinctual in our inner mammal to be defensive if you're a man. Mm. And which goes back to like defensiveness is so much easier than being nice and working your problems out. <laughs> I think that's <laughs> the tribalistic nature of the human spirit. You know, we've only evolved yeah. only 30,000 years away from being monkeys, right? Or whatever. And, right. you know, hunter gatherer killing people, dragging women by their hair into a cave, like the Fred Flintstone stuff. We're not that far mm -hmm. away from that in the evolutionary calendar that Carl Sagan, you know, the cosmos calendar. Have we reached a point yet where we can consciously say that woke men you know, I, I suppose I might be one of them because I don't really want to carry a gun and hurt people. And I'm very anti-confrontational. <laughs> Maybe that's the Woody Allen in me. But mm. I don't think there's an answer to your to that question because we're always evolving as a species. And I, I do believe that nurture always 
trumps nature. Mm -hmm. I think I might have to agree with you there because I don't think we're born. I'm going to have to sit with this idea that we're born defensive because I think I have a fundamental belief that we learn to be defensive, but I'm also in a women's body. So I can't speak to what it's like for those who born in a man's body. Right. And so maybe that is your experience of it's, it's born, you know, that you're born defensive, but I feel like that's something we learn that we're taught. Well, you can reinforce fight or flight in any way. I mean, I, so I've heard a completely unrelated and yet somehow strangely in my mind related thing to fight or flight. And it came down to when I got my first speeding ticket and literally shot my pants with the cop. I'm 17, right? <laughs> oh my God. So, yeah. And then, but regardless, that's not a word that uh, what happened there. Oh my God. I was so furious. You know, they've just made it a word. Oh, did they? Yeah. Merriam Webster just right. declared Curse it Curse you dictionary. All right. End of segue. <laughs> but someone gave me a book on how to deal with this. And it was called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. And Do It Anyway. I remember that but book. But that was the book about getting out of a traffic ticket, not about dealing with other problems in life. And yet it became so applicable to everything else. It really helped me, at least at a young age, to appreciate what do you do with the mad that you feel, which is what Mr. Rogers would say to kids? That's beautifully said. And that's so much of the work that I do is, is stabilizing the nervous system, like learning how to stay spacious in the face of your own emotions, to not have them take over in a destructive way, you know, to be able to feel what you're feeling, feel the fear and do it anyway, feel the anger and stay clear and be able to be in the conversation anyway, or request a timeout and step back if your nervous system has overwhelmed your capacity to stay in the conversation, right? This is such key work for being in relationship with other human beings because we aren't all the same. We don't all believe the same. We are not going to do what the other person wants all the time, nor are they going to do what I want all the time. And so learning how to be self-responsible with how I'm showing up to me feels like the deepest work and necessary work we have to do. But you don't want to sound like a cat poster, right? When you're going no. through hell, keep going. Really? Come on. No. Like hang in there. Oh my God. <laughs> no. How do you not be a no. cat poster? Yeah. Uh, you not be a cat poster by um, really recognizing that it's hard and being true to your own experience. I think we can feel the difference when someone is laying a platitude on us and when someone is speaking from lived experience. I think it's something that's obvious and felt. Back with our guest after the break. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. 
Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Let's talk about isolation, the mental health issues of isolation. Again, we're recording this amidst the massive global pandemic. Things are really, really bad right now. The third wave is hitting the United States and the rest of the world. We've been isolated from each other socially for 10 months, nine months now, which compounded the already audacious way in which technology has made us less human. You and I grew up in an era where we saw people and played in the streets and got dirty and our parents didn't know where right. we were at five o'clock. And, you know, stupid Gen Xers, they call us these people. So, you right, know, right. where are you in the therapeutic nature of your client work and how to reconcile distance and isolation in 2020? That's such an important question because especially if you're alone, you know, if you don't live with another person and then you're socially distanced or you're in quarantine or, you know, in a lockdown, what do you do? And I think there's a difference between isolation and aloneness. You can be physically alone, but still connected to people. And you can be with people and still be isolating because you're not sharing yourself, because you're not being open, because you're hiding. So to me, really, the question is always, how do I support more connection in my life? For example, what I did, I have a group of friends that um, that I usually travel with once a year. We've been doing this for 13 years now. We've known each other since we were about 17 years old. But about 13 years ago, when a bunch of us turned 40, we started this yearly trip, which obviously we couldn't do this year. So at the start of the pandemic, um, I, I said, hey, let's get together on Zoom on Saturday night. And then it became a weekly thing. And we ended up having more connection with each other on a regular basis than we did throughout the year, even though we didn't get to take our physical trip together. And we have now a text thread that we're in constant communication with each other in a way that we hadn't been before all this happened. So I think there's a way to proactively create connection with people, even if you can't physically be together at this time, because I think connection is the most important thing. You know, addiction is rooted in lack of connection. All, a lot of our suffering, I, I would venture to say much of our suffering, although right now, maybe it seems like a lot of our suffering is rooted in connection with people who are unlike us. But I think in truth, a lot of our suffering is rooted in a sense, a lack of connection. And so we have to act, just be more proactive about it at a time like this, especially if we're physically alone. And especially for kids. Especially for kids. I mean, I can't even... 
this is, I think what breaks my heart the most about this is what is this going to do to the kids? Yeah, it's easy for Jews to say, oh, we're always going to be in therapy. But for real, what do you actually what do you actually do when push comes to shove? This is a major bump in the road, to say the least. I'm doing it a, a gross disservice to say it that way. My kids are 10. So fifth grade mm-hmm. is about the cusp of they kind of will be OK if they don't do this for a year. But it also comes down to the parents. Where can we mm-hmm. fill in the gaps of crisis education, not doing what they normally do in school? But many of my friends, I'm sure many of your friends have children under the age of 10. What could that yeah. possibly mean to the development of these children when we're talking about nurture? This is not nature. This is nurture. It's unintentional, horrible nurture, but it's nurture nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I shudder to think, you know, what's going to happen to this generation, to be honest, just because you also have parents who are trying to work at the same time. And then all of a sudden, they're supposed to be teachers, which for many of them is not their role in life like that. They weren't trained for that. They weren't trained to homeschool their kids. And then now that schools are, you know, have stepped back in and are trying to hold classes. I mean, it's just what is being on screens doing to their brains? You know, to be on a screen all day has far reaching effect on your brain matter, you know, on your eyes, on your. So, I, I mean, just starting from the physical effect alone and then what that does to the chemical effect, the brain chemistry effect, what that does to our ability to be social with one another. I, I don't have a good answer for that. I mean, I, you know, I, I think. We have to do what we can to be connected with one another and to hold a vision for, okay, you know, this is what's here. This is what's happening. How do I respond to it to the best of my ability in a way that is nurturing to life, is nurturing to love, is nurturing to connection? And how do I handle my own traumatic automated reactions that are encoded in the nervous system, how do I do my own work so that, again, I have spaciousness in the face of my own reactions and can stay in connection with another human being, even when we're having a hard time, then how do I translate that to my kids and help my kids learn to have that kind of capacity, even though we're in this unprecedented and frankly, you know, dehumanizing situation? Well, I mean, If there's one silver lining, and just tell me I'm an idiot if I say it the wrong way, woke culture is to our benefit now because we're aware of the mental health implications this has on our children growing up and on Mm -hmm. ourselves. 15, 20, 30 years ago in the pandemic of 1918, no one knew about this stuff. It was kind of like ethereal, right? Now we are aware in advance to make sure that we do whatever we can to not reverse this, but subdue it to a point where we can guarantee a certain level of comeuppance and educational fortitude and citizenry for these children over the next 10 years. And hopefully it won't happen again like this, but at least we're aware. Is that at least a silver lining? I think that I think that is a silver lining. I mean, even from when I was growing up until now, there's so much more awareness of how trauma informs our reactions. Like nobody talked about fight or flight when I was a kid, nobody, and and much less fight, flight, freeze, or fawn, right? There's actually four categories of brain level automated responses to when we feel danger, in danger, we feel afraid. 
And that none of that was talked about when I was a kid. You know, we had to kind of suck it up, right? And so I, I agree that there is a silver lining that at least we're going into this with more awareness. And at the same time, I feel a big divide culturally between people who understand, who kind of live a trauma-informed life, you know, where they recognize their reactions and they and they do their best to mitigate them and and act in a conscious way, and those who are just perpetuating outmoded ways of being. I mean, we see that very strongly right now. I've heard the phrase trauma-informed several times, and I, I had to unpack it myself, but, you know, in Star Wars, sorry, I'm not apologizing. <laughs> I love Star Wars. <laughs> Yoda says that you must unlearn what you have learned. In your work with couples and individuals in the relationship alchemy universe, what have you found works and doesn't work? I'm sure it's an individualized and a one basis. How do you unwire a lot of that trauma to move people into a more productive path in their relationship? The first step is to accept that it's happening when we pile self-blame and self-recrimination or judgment or shame or guilt on top of the reaction we're having, that compounds it. And, and it's usually that thing that we're piling on top of the reaction that's creating the problem. The reaction itself is the reaction. So the more that we can accept that's what it is, I call it building a gap, right? So you have your initial reaction that's you know, somebody says something, you get pissed off, you feel this big upswelling, this rah in your body, and all of a sudden you're yelling. Well, if you can catch it early enough, you feel that sensation rising, you don't make it wrong, and you don't throw it out there at the other person, but you also don't shame yourself for it, you can begin to build what I call the gap or a pause between that first reaction and then the thing that actually comes out of your mouth. Because that's where all the magic lies, is in the gap. Viktor Frankl, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and freedom. That was Viktor Frankl. That is the right amount of syllables. Not too complicated, not too simple. I like that. Yeah, it's one of my faves. So I want to take the rest of the time to talk about how we met. We met through a woman named Trisha Brooke, who was on my show a while ago, and she trains speakers, her big talk academy, and you are a client of hers. You've gone through her process, and I like to make sure that, you know, I'm always like, so you want to be a speaker, huh? It, you know, <laughs> <laughs> can, we, can we just talk about, it ain't that easy, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, ingredients that have to go into this process, but you seem to have come prepared in a sense as someone who's creative, who liked an audience, who was a poet. You're, you're a creature of the arts, Renaissance driven. Did you find any level of discomfort or what the fuckery on like, all right, I'm going to get on stage. <laughs> what the hell am I saying to who and how does this work? Yeah, I, I don't have so much of the what the fuckery about that. I think what I struggled with when I first began with Trisha was why the hell does what I want to say matter, you know, and, and what's really mine to say that hasn't already been said, right? I think that was the thing that really was tripping me up. It was like the who am I question. And, and through working with her, this is something that is so powerful about the work with Trisha is that she really, through asking questions and 
naming when you say something that is unique, you know, because she's kind of heard it all over the years. And so as we talked each time, she was catching the phrases, catching the ideas, catching the things that were coming out of me in our conversation that she hadn't heard put just that way before. And she would say like, oh yeah, that idea isn't new, but this idea, I've never heard anybody say that before, right? So she helped me kind of begin to filter, what is my thing, for lack of a more articulate word? What is my thing? Um, you know, and that I think is part of the magic of working with her and helping me ground into the value that I do offer. And yeah, I think that's, you got to know that as a speaker. So what have you learned the most that you didn't expect to learn that could be something you then impart down to someone else that says, hmm, I want to be a speaker? You got to know yourself, know your message, trust your message. And I mean, this is something I already knew from poetry, but it's coming back to me over and over again as I work on my talks. This idea that the more specific and personal you get, the more universal it becomes. So I think as speakers, especially those who want to be motivational speakers in some way, the first pass tends to be this kind of cat poster, you know, the platitude. You want to kind of say the thing that's going to motivate people and have them feel good. And ultimately, that tends to fall flat. And the more deeply you get into your unique and very specific lived experience, and what you've learned out of that lived experience, that's that resonates deeply, you know, that that feels true at a deep level. The more you can get to that essence, the more people connect with that. It touches a place much deeper than any kind of platitude ever does. All right. I will give you the floor. For any listeners that want to know all about you, how can they take advantage of your skills, your offerings, the impact you've had on so many people with your services and experience? How do they get to know you? How do they find you? And what can they do right now? Well, right now, you can go to memali.com, which is spelled M-E-M-A-L-I, my first two initials and my last name, .com. And there you'll see all the various things that I'm offering. I do small group programs for women and non-binary folks who are comfortable in spaces that center women. I do private work with men and women. I don't have couples work uh, on the website, but if an amazing couple comes along who where both partners in the, in the couple want to do the work, I love working with couples who are motivated to deepen their relationship, learn how to communicate, give, give each other room to be themselves. I think to me, what's most powerful is to have a relationship with another human being that's really for the purpose of each person's growth. And you're there for each other and supporting each other in each of your evolution in a loving way, like you're on the same team. So that's really the foundation of my work. And I do that privately and in small groups. And I'd love to have a conversation with anyone who's interested in exploring that. I also have a quiz, uh, which you can access on the homepage, or you can go directly to memolly.com slash quiz. And that is titled, What's Your Relationship Style? And I've identified a continuum, a four-stage continuum of 
growth and really stages of consciousness around how you relate to yourself and others. So it's great to take that assessment to got to get a pulse on where you're at. And through the subsequent emails that follow, you get tips and teachings on what you need to cultivate to expand your range, to gain more skill, to grow to the next level of being able to have more freedom and more agency in your relationships so that you're not just a ball of reactivity, but you actually have choice in how you respond to things and then eventually get to a place of the you know, artistic freedom uh, in terms of how you relate, true playfulness and freedom. So that quiz is also accessible there. And that's a great place to begin. I'm going to wrap with a quote from your homepage from emmymolly.com, which is, our world is starving for connection, begging for forgiveness and craving generosity. Marie Elizabeth Molly, relationship alchemist. Thank you for coming on Other Patients. Thank you so much. It's been a huge pleasure to talk with you. That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com. <laughs>